Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Brian Frederick. Welcome to the AWH podcast, Beyond the Roadmap. I'm here with Cindy Thomas, who came in from D.C., to speak with me at a session tomorrow at the Columbus Women in Technology Conference. And just because we're sadomasochistic, we figured also why not record a podcast the night before the conference when we are completely loopy <laughs> and we have, we have no sense of what we're talking about. So that's what we're going to do. Fantastic. So does that sound good to you? Sign me up. Okay, good. So how did you get in the business of helping clients solve complex problems? So I didn't actually really know about um, the whole complexity thing until um, maybe about five years ago. All I have ever really known is that I am a big picture person and I have an ability to or I've come to understand that I have an ability to look at a situation and understand all of the, the movements that are going on and how things are connected together. And then I have an amazing ability to oversimplify stuff, which is good in a lot of ways, but can really piss people off too, because they think that I don't understand the complexity that's behind it. But I think that um, actually it's, it's I, I do understand the complexity but it's the ability to make it simpler so that you can move through solving it. So uh, what's your company? What do you mostly help clients do? Let's work that in early on so people have that context. Yeah, so our company is Complexus. The translation of it or the definition of it is the uh, plural form of complexities, many complexities. So we do complexity and chaos theory-based planning and operations um, in the national security market. So we uh, support Department of Defense and the intelligence community, as well as some of the, the R&D, the federal R&D type communities. So really, we're looking at different ways of trying to solve planning and operations problems within national security, which gets into a wide range of things from game theory into war gaming, and then how you actually carry that out into policy and planning and IT acquisition and uh, everything under the sun into operations, network operations every day. And are you working with those agencies because they have the greatest need or they're most open to complexity theory and your sort of approaches to solving the problems, a combination of both? So I would say that within the military, the IT, or I'm sorry, the, the, the intelligence community, which we call IC, is... I, I have a little bit less experience with how they sort of develop their senior leadership. Within the, the defense community, senior officers go off to schools, um, those that are going to be promoted up through the general ranks. And they go to these, these schools and they are sort of prepped to think, uh, consider new things and to think differently about how to solve problems. And so there are schools like the uh, Strategic Air and Space um, Study School, which is down at Maxwell Air Force Base. They are getting to the top sort of 1% of the uh, the officers within the Air Force community. And they do accept um, a small percentage of sort of international um, participants. 
they introduce subjects like this. And so the entire thought around um, complexity and chaos theory, it's its known amongst some of the folks that, that make it up there. It's just not really a practice yet. They can know about things, but they don't, they, they may not necessarily know how to apply it. If they do, they might be applying it to more futuristic R&D type things and not necessarily to the planning and operations portion for current day. Gotcha. So you're originally from Columbus. Mm-hmm. You also have a consulting background, so you worked in, in management consulting, for lack of a better term. Um, was that a good training ground for you to ultimately be doing what you're doing now? And how much of the management consulting are you leveraging now? Or did it have ultimately very little sort of leverage based upon what you're doing now? So I think that if you were to go out and pull a bunch of people who fall into the management consulting area, um, everybody tends to be a generalist. They all seem to be arrogant assholes also. They can be arrogant assholes. I would like to think I don't fall into that category. I would agree. I would like to think I fall into the nice, not so arrogant category. Um, you know, big, uh, typically big picture type people who see the connections. I think that that is um, very helpful towards it. I look back on my career and for a long time I felt lost. I didn't really know where what I was doing was going. When I finally got to a point where I looked back and I realized that everything was actually very connected and was building was a very pivotal moment in my career in understanding that I did get stuff more than maybe I gave myself credit for and that Everything and and the way that I had learned and put these pieces together in these different roles, even though they felt very completely disconnected at the time, were actually very similar, but from different perspectives. So it helped me to gain those perspectives, which was very useful and helpful towards building a whole picture and at least understanding, if, if nothing else, that I am one small part with one small view, and it takes many views. So one of the things that I find that's most helpful to anything that I do is collaboration. I am not the smartest person in the room. I know where to find smart people that bring in different talents, and so it's bringing those different talents together to make sure that you think through things um, holistically and completely that helps produce the best product. How do you define complex and when does something cross the threshold from being not complex to being complex? Wow. Okay. So there's actually some good definitions around this. Anything that is predictable, meaning that we know that we can say what something is going to do and it does what it's going to do and then it produces the outcome that we expect is something that's considered simple on a complexity scale. When something crosses over the threshold into becoming complex is when you have multiple things that are that are going on that are introducing change into an environment and it creates different outcomes, different possibilities for different outcomes. When there are so many complexities that come into an environment that it creates a state of chaos where you don't really understand what's going on and anything could happen. That's when you venture into chaos. So the entire theory, study, and practice of complexity and chaos theory was actually born from weather. So interestingly enough, we have this hurricane coming in. 
And so they wanted to understand how can we predict weather. So starting to study what the weather trends were and understanding how can we predict when something's going to happen and where are the inflection points where something new and minute gets introduced, the butterfly effect gets introduced into the weather patterns. And even though it's small, it creates a ripple effect that then produces variable outcomes. So when you get into starting to understand that and then bringing in things like um, human behavior, which presents a whole new sort of, um, not a shadow, but just a whole new palette of colors onto any situation, you can get, you, you get into game theory and looking at how humans interact together and then how those humans interact. What are the outcomes that come from that? So long sort of winded walk through simple to complex to chaos. It's understanding what that soup to nuts walkthrough is and then also what each of those inflection or demarcation points are what triggers those, and then how to bring it back. Chaos can only last for so long. Um, complexity can be there. We live in a very complex world. Things are not simple anymore. So it's, it's about understanding where those boundary points are and bringing them back to a place where we can have more control over it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You, ch you spoke earlier about having a skill of, of simplification, of taking something that's fairly complex and simplifying it. But complexity bias, as we were talking about earlier is a real thing when you're creating when you're creating products because by and large they've done enough sort of research and studies now to know that and and it correlates to what you were talking about earlier and and solving co complex problems that we don't believe as humans instinctually that you can solve a complex problem with a simple solution so how do we then get better at that and more comfortable with that and not let complexity bias exist and keep us from driving to what could be simple, elegant solutions to very complex problems? So days of simplicity. When I think of going back to simple times that I would personally like, it's a phone that's attached to a cord that's wiggly and, and my, my dad's yelling at me to get off of it. Um, it's paper processes where I'm having to rip off a, the top of a triple cut form to, to hand it to somebody. That's simple. We don't have those times anymore. We now have um, computers. So the, the computer and the technology age uh, developed everything in, into a place where we now have more variables the internet of things that everybody talks about has now created a situation where you take each device and everything is now connected and you have are adding the human element which is behind the, the physical technical device and it's creating an increasing level of complexity or, or a, an infinite number of variables and different outcomes at the end of the day and i would say that this is kind of where the the, the government struggles we're trying to still work from a frame of reference that is somewhat outdated. And this gets a little bit into the conversation that I was referencing earlier. One of the reasons why um, I was sad to leave my hometown was because my, my work personality did not necessarily sort of fit in very well into the Columbus work culture. And what I mean by that is 
I'm a little bit more straightforward. Um, I'm a little bit more, I wouldn't say aggressive, but definitely in pushing the edge of trying to get things done. It's all with good intent and good purpose, but I definitely push and try to drive people and I don't sit back and kind of wait for things to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm a make things happen person. Our culture here in Columbus, uh, for better or worse, is still a, a little bit old-fashioned and that we kind of like to wait for, for things to happen. And so as a result, it, it doesn't sort of support that. But what we can do to help simplify everything is to start to bite it off in chunks. It's the whole old eat the elephant one bite at a time. Strategy can no longer be developed in a look at what you need to do five or 10 years from now, like we used to do. Basically, you're at point A, you need to go to point B, you're going to target point B, and what are the things that I need to do to get there? There are too many variables that are changing in between now and then. Um, IT and Moore's Law, things are developing too quickly. I know that we've sort of reached an inflection point where that might be slowing down a little bit, but those complexities are, are, are still there. And so you can't really predict what's going to happen. And so people really kind of get derailed from from what that end goal is going to be. They get thrown off and then they don't know what to do. So when you talk about developing software or developing a solution, really software is the development of a solution to solve a problem for today. But you're doing it in this environment where you have rapid evolutions of change in technology. So it's understanding what goals you're trying to achieve in the development of that software. And no matter what the change might be that occurs as a result, you are still going to achieve the goal. And I'm hoping that that makes sense. (laughs) But you really should be it's a different focus point, rather than focusing on the task that you have to accomplish. It's focusing on the outcome that you're trying to achieve. So as long as you can achieve that outcome, no matter how you do it, you will get to where you need to be. And so that is a way to help simplify it because that can account for the variables, which still I'm going to put the plug in gets into anti-fragility. Um, I'm going to ignore Sorry. the anti-fragility plug. It's okay. Um, so how do you think complexity bias and overcoming it and what you just sort of walked us through in your mind, how does that relate to building software products? Because th- there is um, one of the real um, tripping up points of building software products is as humans, we tend to overbuild, uh, right? Because overbuilding the product feels like progress. It feels like more is better when in reality, the best products are, are typically the simplest, most elegant you know, solution to a problem and sort of resisting that complexity bias and resisting overbuilding and resisting have it do 1,200 things versus 12 things. In your experience, how does, how does one sort of correlate to the other so that better, more still high value, but, some, but simple, simplistic products get built? So the overbuilding comes from a desire to fulfill the entire requirement, right? You have a customer who's articulating a problem that they want to solve and we want to solve that problem in its entirety. And so we go through to sort of that, we're working ourselves still sort of out of the um, old rational unified 
process methodologies and the waterfall methodologies that we all grew up with and trying to transition more into the agile methodologies where things are small and incremental. The small and incremental capability gains are very valuable and it's those small and incremental steps and by turning one light switch on in a room and allowing a customer to see what is in that room that could potentially help them find an exit that they wouldn't otherwise see if they had the whole house built at one time or had, had the, the, the plan done all at one time. So I think that if, if we can you know, remain sort of true to what some of Agile, you know, the Agile practice brings, not just in the sense of the process itself, but in what it's trying to achieve, which is small incremental steps towards an outcome, you will allow the process to develop more in a way that is going to achieve a better outcome for your customer or client or whomever you might build a, be building a solution for, rather than trying to solve that whole problem all at once. The small incremental steps will help them see, get them to one point where maybe 10 opportunities were open rather than leading them down one path through 10 steps to get them to a place to realize that they aren't where they wanted to be. Okay. So building products is really about problem solving. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if we got better at understanding problems and that we actually got more intentional about understanding problems at a deeper level, that we would then be better about solutions that were simple, simpler and more elegant? Yes and no. Okay. How so? So I think that I experienced this with... Um, with some of my current clients where there is um, the Air Force is a, an airborne culture and the airborne culture is one of checklists. They do safety flight checklists. Whenever you get onto a plane, each of those pilots is going through a checklist to make sure that everything is safe with, you know, with, with the, the machine itself so that it can go up into the air and land safely and get all the passengers where they need to be. Um, so it's a life or death type thing. It's a checklist. You go through the checklist, you make the, sure that everything is checked off. Um, if you don't, then you don't go. And so what that has created over 75 or 76 years now is a pretty risk averse culture where if something is not on the checklist, or if you get to a point in the checklist where you're unable to move on to the next thing, they, they have a, a difficulty sort of moving beyond it. So the point I'm mentioning is that you get into analysis paralysis. You, when you get to that point where you don't understand something and you want to try to solve it and you're trying to understand that problem more, it's analyze, analyze, analyze. So while it is good to understand what the problem is and be able to articulate it, it is not good to overanalyze it and over-engineer it and overthink it because you could come up with any number of things and then you start to do that to a certain point where you need to, where you're never, you're always going to second guess yourself. So it's important, I think, to be, um, you know, acknowledge and, and be conscious of the fact that you might be looking at something too much. But making sure that you understand and validate what the understanding is through a series of, of good questions, 
to, to understand the problem um, is definitely uh, worthwhile and helpful, but making sure you don't venture over into the point of overanalyzing is, is definitely a worthwhile cause too. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yep. So um, really the best products and the most successful products solve high value problems. Always. Right? Always. And and so is it true that most complex problems are also high value problems? Or can a problem be complex but not high value in, in, in that solving it doesn't give you a significant incremental improvement over the existing complex problem state. Yes. Not every problem is meant to be solved. So I think that, you know, there are, there are sometimes problems that we feel like need to be solved, like manual processes that we feel should be automated. But when you actually look at what it takes to automate that process versus having somebody do it manually, is it really the right return on the investment? You know, I'm working with my, with some of my defense customers right now on answering some of those questions and, and looking at, does it really make sense to build a, a, a million dollar solution for a $10,000 problem? Um, probably not. So I, I think that, that you do need to ask, um, you know, some of those those types of common sense questions. I think common sense is really important in, in thinking through problem solving. <laughs> and underappreciated uh, in Very this Very underappreciated. Very underappreciated. I will tell you that um, I am usually always the person that asked that question that everybody thought somebody had already asked or assumed somebody had already asked and, and didn't. And I am always the person who who's typically pushing back and saying this is like ridiculous why why would we you know go and spend all of this time and energy on doing this thing just to um uh, alleviate the the burden of you know one fte of of dollars when we haven't identified through any part of the discussion who might be utilizing what they're producing just had that conversation of you know last week so um, we perceive the value to be high, but when you actually get into asking the discovery and investigative type questions, you find out that, that maybe maybe it's it's not quite as valuable as you think it is. It's in your not in your head, but perceived value. Right. Perceived right. value. You right. need to validate value. Well said. As you um, flash, you double V signs. <laughs> Why why are game theory and sort of complexity theory and chaos theory and all these theories and these sort of, of simulations, um, why are they effective ultimately in helping to understand and solve complex problems? So there are some really smart people working on this stuff. They're much, much smarter than me that have worked in this field for a long time. I sometimes feel like an imposter, though I do have original thoughts, but I think it's smart to work off of, I like the thought of working smarter, not harder. So I'm not going to go and try to reinvent something. Those inflection points that we talked about before, where you understand, um, you know, where does simple become complex and where does complex become chaos? That is important. And understanding the principles behind 
complexity theory and what makes something complex and studying what in your particular environment moves something from being simple to complex and from complex into chaotic and studying the triggers that force it in there and then maybe some of those that you can use to put it back because you know, chaos can't last forever. Complex is here forever. And simplicity is yesterday. You're probably going to need to figure out what you can do if a situation moves into this chaotic state to push it back into a place of complexity where maybe you have a little bit more control over it. Understanding what each of those types of um, studies in theory does and what it does to help hone your ability to identify trends, to identify triggers, and to be able to sort of study the reaction, you know, action and reaction within physics. There's a really interesting, um, related to this, a very interesting theory that's emerging called constructor theory. And constructor theory is basically the understanding of how how the non-physical world is affected by the world of or has an effect on the world of physics so as an example information that is passed by my brain um, utilizing energy which is a part of the physical world to create a thought and to vocalize it uh, through you know an, an auditory decibel that you're going to hear and to process it is a physical thing as a part of the world of physics. However, what my brain chooses to share and communicate and over to you and how you choose to interpret it is something that's of sort of a non-physical um, space. So understanding how things like communication affect the development of the physical world and physical law are very interesting. There's a group over at Oxford University, a guy named David Deutsch, who's one of the sort of father figures of, um, of uh, oh, why can't I think of it? It's one that's so easy. I can't even think. Quantum computing. Um, he, they, they are starting to look into sort of how these impacts affect one another. So I, I just, I've, I guess, sort of find those inflection points um, fascinating and and find that they're all sort of tied together and work in mysterious ways. Yeah. I, I don't think I answered your question. I think I partially answered your question. I think you at least partially answered it, which I'm gonna just going to give you personal credit at this point for a partial answer. I'll take partial credit. Yeah. Um, so, um, you've teased it a couple times and yeah. I have no idea w what it is and what you're going to say about it. Anti-fragility. So you he heard of it? here's your anti-fragility moment. Really? You haven't heard I have of it? not heard of it, but oh. I, but I only read, you know, at a third grade level. So there's probably stuff out there that is very, it is very sophisticated it's around fourth it. Fourth grade level. That I, so exactly. I can understand that I wouldn't have understood it. There. My son's read it. Yeah. He, he's in fourth grade. Right. Um, fifth grade was the four Joking. best years of my life. Fifth grade. Is that when you got your first girlfriend? <laughs> it is. It's about the time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was skating at USA North holding hands like in my skates. They were gray with red. They were Ohio State colors. Oh. I had no idea I was going to go to Ohio State. Scarlet and gray skates. Yeah, I beautiful. refused to go it's to Ohio very, State. It's adorable. Best decision I never made, mom and dad said, you're going to Ohio State. 
best decision ever. Um, Anti-fragility. So Nicholas Nassim Taleb has written a series of books that are about anti-fragility. He, um, uh, those who sort of follow complexity and chaos theory are familiar with his works. And so uh, I have at length discussions with those within the national security field around this. But anti-fragility, the concept is pretty simple. The flu, every year people get the flu vaccination. Why do we get the flu vaccination? Because the flu comes out and they determine through predictability what's going to, to happen or what flu strain is going to come out. They create a vaccination. Everybody gets a vaccination. That vaccination is created because other people got sick. So we learn from that. That's how all vaccinations are created. People got sick. We go and we study it. We create a vaccination for it. We inoculate and then the population is protected. So if you think about that in the broadest context, um, we can apply that concept to almost anything. A business, a type of business that starts up and it has problems, but there are other businesses that are sort of like it. Whatever problems it has, the other businesses are going to learn from. So when you translate this into the information technology world, you're getting into things like self-healing networks. Uh, the network is going to identify that it has a virus within it. It's going to look at it and it's going to inoculate itself against it. And so that really is the concept of anti-fragility. It is the fact that organisms like the human species and other species have evolved over time, plant species, etc. And they have done so by becoming anti-fragile. I, I don't know that it is as prevalent within the commercial industry as it is within the the public sector, um, specifically within the federal sector, but we have this concept of resiliency. So the word resiliency is used a lot. You know, we want resilient networks. We want we want to be resilient against a cyber attack. And that's kind of my background. Um, I grew up in the financial services sector for the first half of my career and then you know, ventured into the Department of Defense and have kind of floated between the two since. But resiliency is, is kind of the, the word of the day. Uh, we want to be resilient to an attack. We want to be able to withstand it. So um, I went to Ohio State, happened to be the best military history program in the country. So I ended up being very fortunate in that regard. So you learn there's two major schools of thought. There's Clausewitz and there's Sun Tzu, right? We know both of those. No, we don't. Okay. Very, very brief and abbreviated history lesson. Clausewitz is a bit more focused on strength and defense. It's we are going to huddle down together. We're going to strengthen the fort. And as long as we can, you know, hold our defense, nothing can penetrate us. We will be resilient. Sun Tzu is know your enemy. Know their weaknesses. Know their strengths. Know what your weaknesses and strengths are and be flexible and adaptable to be able to maneuver and counter, um, you know, act and counteract. And so if you think about fragility and anti-fragility in the same con and same construct, sort of, you get into what do we know that's solid versus, you know, and resilient and can withstand something versus what's able and is more fluid to sort of be able to dance around and be more reactive and, and be able to sort of survive something versus just withstand it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So applying anti-fragility is very important because we have a complex world. 
We have so many different variables. We have game theory. What's different about game theory is that it brings in the human component. It brings in the human psyche because computers don't necessarily operate on their own, even AI-oriented um, elements. There is a human being that is, that is programming them. So the point is, the anti-fragility plug is, if we as a culture can learn and to become more anti-fragile, to be able to be adaptable to what's going on and responsive, uh, rather than being resilient, which is more oriented around um, being able to sort of hold a line uh, from a military sort of perspective, that we will probably be able to probably survive more um, or more holistically than we than we could if we um, just try to stand aground. One of the things that I that I speak uh, and and write about is the fact that when uh, we're building software products, human nature sort of directs us away from getting and staying close to customers and users. Because dealing with other human beings and interacting with them and understanding what they want and what they would prefer and whether a solution is viable for them is hard work and it's complicated and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of energy. So even if we start down that path, typically we don't continue doing it. When you're working with clients and you're addressing some of these complex matters, how much and how frequently are you engaging with and in doing research and validation with with stakeholders that would be impacted or your clients versus just sitting with a client going through some game theory complexity theory you know sort of scenarios and then pushing down you know a solution or a strategy so i'd first say that there's sort of no exact science to the stuff that i'm venturing into nobody's really figured out and i think that that's kind of the the beauty behind it is um there are so many things that it could be so it's working with the customer through discussion or the client to to figure out how it could benefit them because there's so many different ways it could be used what you described to me is the sort of the difference between an engineer and a business analyst at, at its core um, in terms that we can all relate to I think a, an engineer typically they're the problem solver they want to create the solution to the problem that's the person who goes and sits back at their desk and drinks Mountain Dew and eats Skittles and they write code and they they create a solution to solve a problem it is the, the you know the the traditional sort of business analyst role who really wants to understand what what is the business problem that we're trying to solve? What's the human element to that? Like because behind everything there's a human element. We're we're solving a process problem or we're most of the time it's just a process problem, really, in all reality. It's really In many cases it's sure. all about process. Well, software is is plumbing for data and information. Yes. Right? Software is nothing more than plumbing. Yes. Right? And and when we think about it in that way, when we simplify it to that level, I think it actually takes it and it relieves a little bit of the pressure mm -hmm. because software has become the, this sort of gargantuan monolithic beast, right? And when you talk about AI and ML and some of those things, right, it's, it's even growing in its sort of specter and size and impact. But ultimately, software is just plumbing for data and information. It is. And it's an engineer that makes that possible. 
So you've got data that's data. Right. But you can also, you can just as a plumber could plumb water right into a building incorrectly so that it's not flowing where it needs to flow Mm -hmm. or it's not flowing efficiently. Engineers can build plumbing inappropriately in software if it's not plumbing that delivers the outcomes that customers and users value and would be willing to engage with and pay for. Exactly. So that's why it is absolutely essential that the you know the engineers or the plumbers, whether they have a crack or not, um, are are listening. Whether it's to the business analysts who can do the translation or to the customers themselves to understand how it is that they want to use the data. They're they're the people that make the connection. The data is the data, and the user is the user. They're trying to make the connection. They're trying to to engineer the connection. There are so many new variables through new methodologies and um, and perspectives, and we talked about some of this earlier. There's there's new there's new ways to to relate data components to one another through different relational um, graph databasing type approaches. How you visualize that information drastically changes how what that user is able to do with the information, decisions that they're able to make, and outcomes that, they're, they're, that they are able to achieve. So that engineer's success is completely dependent upon them understanding what's on either side of them, which is what data do I have and how does my client or customer need to be able to use it. So it is essential as much as these guys like to sit in a room and think that they just need to go solve the problem that they do try to understand whether it's through the, the, the traditional business analyst or the interpreter as you will or through the customer by asking their own questions. And you do typically need sort of a translator. I find it's, it's, it's difficult and, and I'm a translator. I, I understand the business component and I understand the technical component and I can usually help to cross that, that bridge, but there is a need to understand that. It's, it's critical to making sure that you develop something that's going to be um, useful and valuable. Yep. Well said. So on that, um, we'll wrap up. I'm Ryan Frederick with AWH and this has been Beyond the Roadmap. Cindy, thanks very much for taking the time to chat and uh, it's time to go to the bar. Okay, let's go. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.